You are listening to the Central Church Podcast. To learn more about Central Church, including our gathering time, visit us online at centralsanford.net. Today's talk comes from Pastor Alan Brumbach. God is good and all the time. Boy, you guys look awful fresh today. Everybody looks awful dapper and everybody looks so happy. Are you happy this morning? Amen. Praise God. Praise God. Well, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 11. Uh, Luke chapter 11, and we're going to begin in verse 14. Uh, If you do not have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and it has been sanitized and clean. Uh, And listen, no sinful germ is ever going to get on a Bible, amen? But if you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you today. Take it home and read it. Uh, But we love you, and so let's stand as we read God's Word in in Luke chapter 11. And if this is your first time here at Central, thank you so much. Hopefully you've got one of these cards, and uh, you will begin to fill it out. Luke chapter 11, verse 14. The Bible says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute, and when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, household, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub, but I cast out de- if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. You may be seated. Uh, That is not a normal Easter text, is it? But you know, this past year has not been normal at all. Amen? Uh, this time last year, as Pastor Craig said, we uh, watched our, our Easter services online. And maybe you that are watching this morning, uh, you're watching it online. And we want to just tell you that we love you and we miss you. But it's not been a normal year. We have suffered a lot of losses this year. We have seen lost lives and lost jobs and lost time and lost opportunities and lost basketball teams. Yet some of the saddest stories that I've heard this year from our church family are people that, whose loved ones passed away, but yet they weren't able to say goodbye to them in person because of restrictions. We've had even people that had to say goodbye to their parents uh, on FaceTime saying goodbye as they passed on to be with the Lord. Uh, We've been told that the COVID world is the new normal in which that new normal means that we uh, wear masks. And and listen, uh, you know, who would have thought that this would be the new accessory? I mean, how many of you have gotten out of your car and you go into somewhere and say, oh, I forgot my mask, and you have to go back and get it? I mean, the good news is I've been told I have a face for masks. Uh, Someone told me the other day that on a scale of one to ten, I go from a three to a five with a mask on. But, but we are in a, this new normal where people wear masks and where people live in physical distancing and isolation. And the question that maybe many of you have, is this the way that life is going to be forever? Is there any hope? 
Well, listen, there's a lot of people putting hopes in vaccines. They're putting hopes in Pfizer and AstraZeneca and Moderna and Johnson and Johnson. But our hope is not in a vaccine. Our hope is in a savior who lived a perfect life, died for us on the cross and on Easter Sunday rose from the dead. And there is hope and there is victory in Jesus. And what I want you to get this morning is that many of you may not be suffering in fear of COVID, but you may be suffering in fears of other things. There may be anxieties or depressions that you're dealing with, or maybe you're dealing with addictions to drug or alcohol, or maybe you're in an abusive relationship, or maybe you're going through some personal hurts or some loneliness or health crisis. And you may say, Pastor, yes, it's Easter Sunday and we're all excited and everyone should be excited on Easter. Easter Sunday, but how is it that I'm going to live in victory on Monday? Yes, today I have excitement, but I need to know how to handle tomorrow. And what I want you to get from this message is this, is that God does not want you to live as a victim. He wants you to live in victory every day because of what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, in the cross and in the empty tomb. See, Jesus came to this world that was broken. That's what happened on Christmas, Charlie Brown. And as he lived a perfect life, we continued to see him move. And in Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus restore a man who was tormented by a demon. And in seeing and hearing this story, it is a picture of why Jesus came. You want to know why Jesus came? Jesus came to give victory. He came to give victory and to restore what the enemy had stolen. That's why Jesus came. He came to give us victory and to restore what the enemy has stolen. And so we're going to see this this morning in our text text through three people. First, we're going to see the changed man. Jesus, in verse 14, says, the Bible says that he was casting out a demon. Now, maybe some of you, you're new to church or you're very skeptical. What is this deal about demons? And it seems kind of strange. Well, the Bible teaches of the existence of demons. The Bible teaches the existence of Satan. If you don't believe in the person of Satan, just hang out with me this week and I'll show you he's around. But Satan and his fallen angels are in an epic cosmic battle against God that began even before the creation of humanity. Satan and the demons uh, chose to rebel against God because they wanted to be God and steal the glory of God. And yet in heaven, God put down that insurrection and cast Satan down like lightning. And Satan came to the earth, and now the new battlefield between God and man is going to be on earth. And when God created Adam and Eve, our first parents, Satan came and attacked them, and he tempted them to to turn from God, their creator, and try to be their own gods, aligning with Satan. And sadly, our parents, Adam and Eve, fell with him. And since that moment in history, all of humanity has been broken. Since that moment in history, all people are born in the bondage and misery of a world of sin, a world that is filled with abuse and violence and justice and racism, disease, disaster, and death. And yet God was not finished with humanity, praise God. God so loved the world that he would not leave us to ourselves, and so he sent Jesus into this world. And so as Jesus is living and he's encountering different people, he encounters here a man. Now, we don't know much about this man, but this man finds himself interwoven in this epic storyline between God and Satan. And we don't know much about him other than he was tormented by a demon. Matthew tells us that he was both blind and unable to speak. Mark says that he was demon-oppressed. Luke suggests that it was the demon who made him both blind and unable to speak. And it's interesting that we see this spiritual battle between God and Satan manifest itself and reveal itself physically in this man's life. 
So Luke, who is a medical doctor, understands that this man's need was not speech therapy. This man's need was Jesus. That this man's deepest problem was not that he couldn't see or not that he couldn't speak, but that he wasn't in a right relationship with God. It was a spiritual condition. See, this man was under torment. He was tormented by evil. Every day that he woke up, he was under the assault and living a nightmare and was unable to break free from it. Every morning that he woke up, he was feeling the pain of that demon. And every time he couldn't speak and every time he couldn't see, he was reminded that he was a captive and there was no hope. Someone has said that torment is abuse that continues without any hope of escape. So here this man was, he's a captive to evil. His life is spiraled out of control. We don't know if he had a family prior to this demon, but he's now lost everything. See, the demon's goal for his life was to steal, kill, and to destroy him. Why? Because Satan's goal for all of humanity is to steal, kill, and to destroy. Satan hates you because God loves you. God loves you and Satan hates you and therefore Satan wants to destroy you. But the fact that there is a real Satan teaches us one thing, that evil is orchestrated. That evil doesn't happen by happenstance, it happens because there's a mastermind behind it. And so Jesus here is casting out this demon and as soon as he casts out the demon, the man spoke. That is, we see here in this moment that he is both physically healed but also spiritually healed. He is now, maybe for the first time ever or in a long time, able to sing the praises of God. He's able to proclaim the goodness of God. He's able to share the love of God with others. He is now able to sing and to, and to, and to see and to shout. I mean, that's why if you're here this morning and maybe you're new to church and you see these people raising their hands and singing to the top of their lungs, they're doing that because they've been set free. See, Jesus is more than your typical exorcist. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 35 verse 6 says that the Messiah will make the tongue of the mute sing for joy. In in this day in Israel, there were many exorcists, or at least people that pretended to be exorcists. They, you know, don't get this idea of the movie and people's heads spinning and stuff spewing out of their mouth, although it may have happened. But there were people who potentially had the ability to get rid of demons. And so no doubt this man probably went to them. No no doubt he went and pursued them and begged for help from them. But yet these Jewish exorcists at this day did not have the same power and authority of Jesus. Because at best they could maybe remove a demon. But Jesus not only could remove a demon, but could restore what the demon had stolen. The demon had taken his speech. The demon had taken his sight. And Jesus is now going to redeem that and restore that. The old boy is speaking very well and seeing with 2020 vision. Now, here's something you have to understand. All religions, regardless of what they are, provide some way of reform. They, they provide some way of change. All religions uh, offer strategies and techniques to break free from an addiction, to break free from something that you're struggling with, to find freedom in, in their religion. I mean, if they didn't, they wouldn't be much help, right? But the truth is, all other religions, that even though they offer the ability to reform you, they do not have the power to transform you. That those other religions and those other self-help techniques may help you look better, may help you act better, but they will not fundamentally help you be better. Because they may remove the demon, but they will not restore what he stole. 
You know, in our day, we have a day full of self-help, and people are always looking for ways to fix themselves, and they'll read books. Maybe many of you have read books to get rid of certain problems. Maybe you struggle with this addiction or that addiction, or you have this sinful lifestyle, or maybe you're getting prone to anger or depression, and you may, through sheer white-knuckling your struggles, find some relief. But the irony that I found with a lot of people is that they trade one struggle in for another that's far worse. It's kind of like the guy who was eating McDonald's every day and trades it for Taco Bell every day. Or it's kind of like the person who went from smoking a pack of cigarettes a day to eating a carton of Cadbury eggs a day. Or it could be like the sports fan who was a, a Miami Dolphins fan that now trades to be a Jaguars fan because misery loves company. <laughs> Jesus did not come to bring reformation. Reformation is from the outside in, but it doesn't last long. Transformation is from the inside out, and it brings about permanent change. Some of you have seen those television shows about people who have radical weight loss situations. And maybe there was a show that you might have seen called The Biggest Loser where people that were bigger were able to get really trim and they would win and they looked really good and they looked really athletic and they would say, man, I'm, I'm having the best life ever and this is the best thing. I've lost weight. I felt great. But then what happens with a lot of those people is they get bigger again. They go back to where they were. Why? Because they looked apart on the outside, but the inside that was causing them to do what they were doing wasn't changed. Some of you may come to church and you may look the part and, and act the part, but inside there's never been a transformation. Coming to Jesus is not about turning over a new leaf. Coming to Jesus is receiving a new life. What you see in Connor's story is that here's a man who grew up around religion, knew about God, but never had a relationship with God. He tried hard as hard as he could to overcome depression. He tried as hard as he could to overcome his addiction, went to rehab, went to therapies, but nothing fixed him like Jesus did. Nothing can change you like Jesus can change you. And in this moment, in this story, this man has victory, and you today can have victory, not just today, but tomorrow and forever because of Jesus. But even though you have a changed man, it seems that there's always critical people. When God is blessing, people are always blasting. So in verse 14, the Bible says that as a result of seeing this man who was once demon-possessed and blind and unable to speak, being able to be free from the demon, seeing and speaking, the crowd saw all of this. They saw what Jesus did. And so in this moment, they had to make a decision in their minds, who is this Jesus? Just as you today, regardless of who you are or watching online, you have to make a decision on who Jesus is. And marveling at Jesus is not the same as believing in Jesus. So the evidence of Jesus' power was all around them, and yet some of them, many of them, rejected him. The first rejection you see is just out-and-out out slander. In verse 15, the Bible says that these people said, whether they said to themselves or out loud, he casts out demons by Beelzebub. Now, who is that guy? Well, he's the ancient Canaanite god, the lord of the flies, who was known in this day in first century Israel as the, co the chief commander under Satan. Now, what does this have to do with Easter? Well, these people couldn't deny what they saw. They couldn't deny reality. This guy was changed. He wasn't the same. And so they had to find some sophisticated way to explain it. 
they had to, they had to do something because the obvious answer was that Jesus was God and, 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 and they didn't want to believe that Jesus was God. They didn't want to believe that, that Jesus was good. And so they said, yes, Jesus, you're powerful, but I don't think you're good. I actually think you're demonic. And the only reason that you would ever be able to cast out demons is that the demons work for you. That was just their explanation. You say, well, that sounds kind of silly. Why, why would people say that? Well, Jesus is going to call them out in a moment about that. But some of us have the same silly, slanderous comments as well. Some of you maybe in this room or watching online struggle to believe in Jesus because you're not sure that he's good. You've gone through pain. You've gone through difficulties or you've seen others go through pain and difficulties. And you say, well, he might be God, but he isn't good. Or he might be good, but he isn't powerful. Or maybe some of you today, you see that Christianity is just a repressive um, uh, religion of, that hates self-expression, that's hung up on sex, and is against personal choice. And so you want to explain it away. You slander against it. Well, there's those that slander, but then there was those that were skeptical. Verse 16, the Bible says that others wanted to test him. Others wanted more signs. They saw that Jesus did this. And they say, we want more evidence. And that's where a lot of, some people are, is that they, they just want more evidence. They say, you know what, I need you to tell me more, Jesus. Show me more tricks, Jesus, and maybe I'll believe. And what that position is, it's that position in which the person says, I'm, I'm God, and I'm going to sit on the throne as a judge. And Jesus, you have to present all the facts and findings to me and my liking. And if I like them and I agree with them and they don't contradict me, then maybe I'll call you God. Have you ever heard someone say, I will only believe in Jesus if? Bart Ehrman, who is a professor at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, who is an agnostic, uh, said this. He says, I will only believe if God Almighty appeared to me and gave me an explanation for all the evil in the world, and the explanation was so overpowering that I could actually understand that I would be the first to fall on my knees in humble submission and adoration. What is he saying? He's saying that if God will come to me, appear to me at my turns in a place that I want and explain to me why all this bad stuff is happening in the world and explain it to me in a way that I like and that I agree with and I understand, then I'll fall on my knees and worship him. Basically, Bart Ehrman is a liar because, number one, God's not going to do that. Number two, if he's saying that, that God has to tell him something he can understand... And if he understands everything, you know what that makes him? If, he under, if you understand everything, you're God. And so he's basically saying, I don't want to believe. The issue with people and most people is not the facts. The issue is faith. These people saw, it, the evidence was clear. But the people didn't want to believe. The same is true today. Listen, Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He walked on water. He rose from the dead. He cast out demons. He died and three days later rose from the dead. After that, he appeared to over 500 people at one time after his crucifixion. You think about that. I mean, if all the people at Woodstock who were smoking LSD, I doubt 500 of them could see the same thing at one time. Billions of people over the centuries have been changed. People have lived for him and have died for him. The evidence suggests that this is truth. The evidence is sufficient. The problem is not with the evidence. If you reject it, the problem is your unwillingness to believe. See, the question that is confronting everyone in this room and everyone watching online is this. Is Jesus who he says he is? 
Is Jesus really God? And did Jesus really rise from the dead? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then everything he says matters. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then nothing he says matters. We should just close down. It's not how you feel. It's is it true? And if it's true, will you believe that it's true? Will you trust in the facts and not your feelings? Here these people saw God, saw Jesus do this miraculous work, and yet they were critical because they didn't want to believe. But now you see the last person in here, and that's the conquering Savior. Verse 17, the Bible says, but Jesus knowing their thoughts. You know, even though maybe some of these people didn't verbalize their criticisms or their objections to Jesus, Jesus still knew their hearts. Jesus knows your heart. Jesus knows your thoughts. You can't fake it around Jesus. You can fake it around me and other people, but you can't fake it around Jesus. Jesus knows your skepticism. He hears your skepticism. He knows and hears your hurts, and he knows your struggle to believe in him. So Jesus here addresses them and even us today. He says to them, I know exactly what you're thinking. You're wondering whether I am who I say I am, but your skepticism doesn't make sense. And so he tells them, he says, if I'm working for Satan and I come up to a demon who's doing a good job, who's tormenting the guy, why would I give him a pink slip? I would give him a promotion. Your skepticism of me is not consistent. It's inconsistent. He says a house divided against itself will fall. Why would Satan cast out Satan? It would be like an American soldier shooting another American soldier. It would be like a a basketball player fouling another player on his team while he's shooting the game-winning shot. If you saw that shot last night, Jalen Suggs from Gonzaga at the very last minute in overtime with the ball in his hands shoots a a shot with less than three seconds left and it would be like somebody on his team pushing him out of the way. It would be like a UCF fighter knocking himself out. Satan doesn't fight Satan. Satan fights God. And so Jesus then says, if I'm working for Satan, what about those people that you think are exorcists? Who are they working for? Are they working for God or are they working for Satan? Because if you're saying, I'm working for Satan, then they must be working for Satan. What Jesus is getting at and what I want you to leave here with is this, is that their skepticism was inconsistent. Their thinking was illogical. They were saying things that didn't make sense. You know, that's one of the problems with our world today. We have people that say, do as I say, not as I do. Or they say this one thing, and, but yet it's, it's, it's good for them, but it's not good for you. It's kind of like this professor that I heard about who stood up in his college class and he says, there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, what is absolute truth? It's, it's believing that something is true and something is false, not that you can pick what's true and you can pick what's false, it, that, that there definitively is something that's true and something that's false. And so he says, there is no such thing as absolute truth. So one student raised their hand and they said, professor, are you sure? And he said, absolutely. (laughs) And now it's an old corny dad joke, but listen, what I'm trying to say is it shows us that we are ourselves inconsistent. Jesus says, you're inconsistent. He says, if I'm therefore not working for Satan, because how, how weird would that be? How silly would that be? If I'm not working for Satan, then who am I working for? It must be God. And he says, then it must be the finger of God. Now, what? just think about that for a moment. Have you ever on the beach wrote your name in the sand with your finger. Isn't it interesting 
that you, it's you that does that and you put it. Well, here, he's saying here that God is physically doing this. That if you're seeing this guy delivered, then you are seeing the kingdom of God invading the domain of Satan at the intersection of this man. And guess who won? God did. The finger of God is an analogy. It's, it's God trying to communicate to us in a language that we can understand. See, what God did for this man in delivering and restoring him is a picture of what God is doing for us. It is a picture of God the Father reaching down into human history through God the Son and liberating and setting us free from the power of Satan. See, God didn't send a messenger. He didn't send an angel. He didn't send a seraph. He sent himself. He came. And so then Jesus gives us his parable in verses 21 and 22. He gives a parable about a strong man and a stronger man. And it's like this. It's, it's, say you have an enemy army, and they have taken over a territory, and they, uh, they have taken over, and they secure everything, and they take all the spoils of the area, and they take all of it, and then they take the people that were there in that territory and hold them as slaves, as prisoners. And you can imagine that, right? And then he says, just imagine then a stronger army, a more powerful army, invading the strong army. Well, what's going to happen? They're going to surrender. And when they surrender, they lose everything that they stole. Uh, about a year and a half ago, I was in northern Iraq, and, and I was in these different villages that ISIS had taken over. And, and you would see these villages that were just ransacked and, and just taken over, and, and bullet holes everywhere and bomb blastings. And what would happen, what had happened is that the ISIS had come in and had taken these little villages and held the people captive. The people of northern Iraq do not like ISIS. And they would take these people captive because they had machine guns and they had armed trucks. And they would take over the territory. They would rob from the people, steal from the people. They would abuse the people. But guess what happened? The United States military came in with tanks and machine guns and Uzis and missiles and helicopters and a lot of soldiers. And they overran these, these strong, this strong ISIS and they fled or they died. That's what happened. Jesus is saying, Satan came to this world. He pillaged. He destroyed. He stole. He ravaged. People are under, acti uh, under captivity. People are under bondage to Satan. They're tormented by their abuser. Yet a stronger man has come. I am he. I have come to crush the head of Satan and set the captives free and restore what the enemy had stolen. That's why the Bible says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. At the cross, Jesus hid his victory in defeat, his glory in shame, and our lives in his death. But then on the third day, he crushed the head of Satan, defeating death, hell, sin, and the grave. Jesus on the cross, cross looked like the conquered, but he was really the conqueror. The cross was the fish hook where Satan thought he had won, but he lost. And that's why Colossians 2.15, Paul says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that's Satan and the demons, and put them to open shame, triumphing, triumphing over them in him. That word triumph in Jesus' day was, was more than just a trial win, it was, it was an event. 
when, when a general or a king won a huge victory, there would be a, a big parade in the city. It'd be like a ticker tape parade in the city, and people would celebrate, and they would have this big parade, and at the front would be the king, and, and then the, the, the soldiers, and then all the captives that were set free, and then all the spoils of war, and then at the very end of the train would be all the enemy combatants, all the enemy leaders, and they would be in chains, and they would be disgraced, and people would, would just be throwing things at them. It would be kind of like a Super Bowl parade. You have, like, think of the one recently. You have Tom Brady and all the, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and, and everybody's excited, and then you have the losing team there behind them, and everybody's just throwing stuff at them, throwing tomatoes at them. Or it would be like going to Disney and seeing, you know, Mickey and Minnie and Goofy and Donald and all the, the, the heroes there, and at the end of the line would be Captain Hook and Ursula and Corella DeVille and Scar and all those people, and then everybody's just kind of making fun of them. Well, here's what happened. On Christmas Day, Jesus came to this world. He invaded this world. He lived a perfect life. At the cross, he put his initial assault into Satan, and he defeated him in the cross. And the final invasion was on the Resurrection Sunday where Jesus Christ raised from the dead and put Satan to shame. And I'll tell you what happened on that Easter day. One demon told another demon, if Jesus really did come out of that grave, hell help us. Because heaven is breaking loose. The resurrection of Jesus is the final invasion against Satan that disarmed and defeated him forever. The event that changed your life and saved our lives remakes our lives and restores us from the inside out. So in this moment, you see here a miracle. This man experienced a miracle in his life. Jesus removed a demon. But above that... He restored his life. So every day, he went from a living nightmare to living in complete victory. Every day, he woke up knowing he had victory over Satan, that he was free from the bondage of his captor, and that he had been restored. That's a miracle. You know, we talk a lot about miracles. I believe in miracles. Jürgen Moltmann, who is a German theologian, said this about miracles. He said, miracles are not the interruption of the natural order, but the restoration of the natural order. He says, we are so used to a fallen world that sickness, disease, pain, and death seem natural. But they are the interruption. They are not normal. See, sickness and death and anxiety, addiction, that's not normal. You know, people come to you and, and you have a problem and, and they look at you, well, you're just being normal. No, that's not normal. Fear isn't normal. Hatred isn't normal. Injustice isn't normal. Racism isn't normal. Abuse is not normal. Violence is not normal. But yet we've been conditioned to believe that that's normal. Listen, this broken world is not normal. In August 1973 in Stockholm, Sweden, there was a bank that was there and it was seized and taken over by robbers. These, these robbers came and, and they held up the bank teller and the bank workers and they strapped explosives on their body. They took them into the vault and for five days there was uh, this hostage crisis. Finally, on day five, uh, the, the Swedish police came in and was able to storm and liberate these people and the robbers were arrested and put in, put in jail until their trial. And when it came to the trial, something strange happened. 
All these people, these bank tellers and, and these bank workers were all asked to testify against these robbers who were their captors for five days, who could have killed them at any moment, who, who, who mistreated them and abused them. And yet, one by one, each of them refused to testify against the robbers. As a matter of fact, some of them even raised money to help in their defense. Psychologists have studied what took place there in Stockholm, Sweden, and they came up with a disorder that maybe you've heard about called the Stockholm Syndrome, in which people who are victims of abuse or hostages develop a bond with their captors during captivity. See, many of you are living as if this world is normal and you've developed a bond with the brokenness. You've not gotten better. You've just gotten used to the pain. But Jesus came to restore this world to the natural order. See, in heaven there won't be blind people. In heaven there won't be people that can't speak. In heaven there won't be demon-possessed people. In, in heaven there won't be addicts. In heaven there won't be COVID-19. In heaven, there won't be cancer. In heaven, there will not be racism. In heaven, there will not be injustice. In heaven, there will not be abuse because Jesus has come to this world and he is restoring and taking back and giving back what the enemy has stolen. But you don't have to wait till you get to heaven to live in victory. You can live in victory now. Jesus put it this way in verse 23. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, to Jesus, there is no neutral ground. You are either with Jesus or you are against Jesus. You are either a critic of him or a conqueror with him. And the only way you can ever have victory. You want to know how to have victory? Not by fighting. But by surrendering. The only way to victory is surrender. And some of you this morning, you've been running from God for years. And all he says is surrender. But what does it mean to surrender? What, what does it mean to trust Jesus? What does it mean to give him your life? Well, right now, everyone in this room is, is seated. And, and you're sitting in a pew, or maybe you're at home, and you're sitting on a couch or in a chair. And what you're doing is you're trusting that chair. You're putting the weight of your body on that chair, and you're trusting it to hold you up. What it means to surrender to Jesus is to put the weight of your life, your past, your present, your future, your sin, your shame, and your sorrows, all your hurts, all your hang-ups, all your demons, and you give them to Him. And you rest in what He did for you on the cross. And you rest in what He did for you in the empty tomb. But some of you, you're like, well, you know what? I don't know if I want to do that. And so what you're doing is you're just kind of squatting right here in your own righteousness. But eventually you're going to be tired. Eventually, you're going to give up. Jesus says, listen, don't squat in your righteousness. Rest in my grace. Amen. And so today, you can have victory. As you saw in Connor, Connor is a different person. Connor is changed because the inside of him has been changed by Jesus, and now he's looking like Jesus on the outside. You can have victory. Maybe you are a Christian and you're struggling. You are not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. Greater is he that's in you than he that's picking on you. Trust in Jesus. Look to him today. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you an opportunity. In each of our services, we've seen people give their lives to Jesus Christ. And today, in this last service, on Easter Sunday... God has brought you to this place on this day for a moment like this. 
for you to come to a place where you just surrender yourself to Him. So would everyone bow their heads, everyone close their eyes. I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith and trust in Jesus. If you're in this room and you say, I've never given my life to Jesus, never surrendered to Him. If you're watching online, you've never done that. Please, I want to give you an opportunity right now. Bow your head, close your eyes, and pray with me. My prayer doesn't save you. It's your faith in Jesus that saves you. Would you pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I've done things I shouldn't do. I'm struggling, God. But today, I believe that you are who you say you are. I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the dead. And today, I surrender my life to you. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I ask that you save me. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Simple Church Podcast. For more information on how to take your next steps, visit us online at simplesanford.net.